0: So we're working through uh, the story of this man Jacob, or rather his father Isaac, who's very, very brief um, narrative, uh, a little bit earlier in the Bible, and now on to Jacob. Jacob later on has his name changed to Israel and forms the the historical uh, nation of Israel. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we saw literally the birth of the nation, as his two wives, Leah and Rachel. Uh, One after the other, or rather, in one, and then the servant girl, and then the other servant girl, and then Rachel, and then the servant girl. These four women had children, bearing children, uh, to Jacob, and those children became uh, the uh, elder fathers of the nation, which is Israel. Uh, And which, interestingly, still has historical and relevant significance in our world today. We still talk about uh, the Jews. We still talk about the nation of Israel. All of those kind of things uh, are not a forgotten thing in one sense. They continue to affect us today, don't they? We're talking about something which exists because we read it starting here in the Bible. Um, when you hear about the issues in the Middle East, when you hear about the conflicts between the various nations, it's always helpful to remember that the very founding of those conflicts, the very beginning of that challenge, finds its roots in the activities of individuals contained within the Bible. Uh, Although that, in one sense, is just kind of filled simply with political and Geographic significance today. On the other hand, it reminds us that what we're talking about when we come to this is not uh, a kind of uh, a book of fairy stories, but rather is uh, a narrative of the history of this world uh, and the engagement of God in the events of life in this world. That's important, really, isn't it? Because that challenges us to think about, well, on that basis, how do I relate to the idea of that God? And what is my relationship to that God? Um, There are two, I guess, there are really simply two ways of responding to that. Um, Whether one is a kind of distant interest uh, or whether it's a, a uh, a, a kind of idea of shunning and not wanting anything to do with that God, that's one category of response. The other category of response is saying, I believe and trust in that God and I'm seeking to live according to the life pattern that he has set out for me as I seek to place my trust in his present son, Jesus. There's the two alternatives which the Bible portrays for us. In a sense, what Jacob is helping us to do as we work through his life is he's helping us ...to think about the issue of how to live wisely before that God. You know, we don't live wisely all of our lives, do we? We don't. But we really live unwisely when we're very, very little. We don't mean to live unwisely, but we do just live unwisely. We, we just do. It's not, let's be honest, it is not wise to take a bowl of cornflakes and to put them on your head... Uh, Hopefully, not many of us would do that now, Um, and yet that would not be an unusual pattern of living when we're very little, would it? But as we grow up, we learn wise and appropriate ways of living. Uh, Hopefully, as we get older, the subtleties of those ways of living wisely Uh, become more important to us. We learn to live in a better, more appropriate way uh, and engaging in more complex issues. Exactly that same pattern of growing up applies to our Christian life, or it should do. There are ways in which we, we are in relationship with God. We have come to faith in Jesus, but in lots of ways we can still be like spiritual young kids who are still putting bowls of cornflakes on our head. We've not learned to stop putting the cornflakes on our head, keep them on the table, and actually eat from the bowl appropriately with a spoon. Uh, I use that picture because it is that stark in terms of the lack of wisdom in which we tend to live our Christian lives at many times. Jacob is a great example of, of many occasions where he carries on metaphorically putting bowls of cornflakes on his head, not learning how to live increasingly appropriately before God. Now, I love the fact that Jacob is like that. I love the fact that we can spend time looking at this man spiritually growing up because it encourages us, doesn't it, when we realize that's more milk running down my face spiritually speaking, there is an encouragement in the Bible that says that does not disbar us from relationship with God. Very often we think of spiritual faith, we think of the Christian faith as a set of scales where on the one hand we have our performance, on the other hand we have God's demands. And as long as our performance kind of weighs heavy enough to be accepted by God, Uh, then we're okay. The reality is that that is not the basis of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is by relationship in faith and trust in Jesus. And so his life, his successful life, becomes the life which is placed on the balance in our place. It becomes the successful life. It becomes the wise life. It becomes the life that never lived putting cornflakes, spiritually speaking, on his head. He lived wisely and our life becomes his. We are accepted because of him and therefore because we are accepted we are learning how to live more like him rather than just accepting that my my spiritual life is dependent upon performance. Having said that, one of the marks of our true faith is the fact that we are progressing in learning how to live appropriately. You know, one of the marks of not truly knowing Jesus as our Savior, is that we've kind of um, said the prayer or, or, or made the statement or filled out the card or whatever it might be and said we're a Christian, but it has no impact on our lives. We don't change, we don't learn to grow, to live more wisely and more appropriately. Jacob, thankfully, is a guy who continues to mess up which gives me encouragement when I continue to mess up, and yet at the same time, step by step, little by little, he is moving forward in his wisdom before God. We've found him, uh, we find him now, he's on this homeward journey. Uh, If those of you have been able to follow it up to now, incidentally, if you do want to catch up, all of, our, uh, all of the previous series talks are downloadable on our website if you want to go there uh, and catch up with the, the narrative so far. We find him with his family about to leave, so it's time to decide for the wives. We read that what he does in verse, um, verse the, uh, the early part of the chapter, uh, he uh, sends word to Rachel and Leah in verse 4 uh, to come out to the fields where his flocks were, And he said this to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. And then he goes on through a whole series of the way in which he's absolutely convinced that God has been with him. We saw last week that Jacob had this strange kind of pattern of behavior with stripping bark off, making stripes and spots and putting it in the feeding trough of the sheep and in a remarkable I, and, and what becomes clear now, miraculous way, every time the sheep mated, they produced striped or spotted sheep. What becomes clear now is that Laban has been on, as has been going along, changing the rules on what was Jacob's wages. So he'd said, that's striped sheep that are your wages. Uh, Because it seemed as if all the sheep up to that point had been bearing spotted sheep. Uh, And remarkably, it now seems that all of the sheep now bore striped sheep rather than pure sheep. And then spotted sheep. And every time, ten times, Jacob says, your father has changed the rules on what my wages are. And here I am again and again. God has changed the outcome so that all of the flocks that were your fathers have become mine. I am the one who is now rich. In other words, I recognize, and this is starting to bear some wisdom, isn't it, in the life of Jacob. He's starting to recognize in life what's happened. The outcome is not because I've been really smart, really clever, which has been his tendency up to now. He's starting to say, I'm realizing that it is God who is behind every action. Every step in the journey, it is God who's working. That's incredibly important for you and me as we recount our own lives, isn't it? How do we respond? How do we see our output? How do we see our decisions? How do we see our outcomes? Maybe you're in a situation which has been remarkably uh, encouraging. Things have happened. Uh, And you might say, look at what I've done. And I want to encourage you to to, to reshape your thinking and start to understand it is not what I have done, but rather what God has done in my life. And therefore, I have a responsibility to use it appropriately in accordance with what God has done in my life. On the other hand, you might find yourself in an incredibly difficult situation. You might say, um, your your immediate response is, uh, God must hate me. Jacob's been in that situation as well. And God wasn't hating him when he was by himself in the wilderness with his head on a stone pillow, totally alone. Neither of those two extremes are outside of God's good provision for Jacob. The girls, however, are now faced with the question, are we going to go? Are you going to come with me? Essentially, is what Jacob Is asking of them. Uh, In verse 14, we read this Rachel and Leah. Now, if if, if we've caught up with the story up to now, Rachel and Leah aren't exactly, you would not describe them as best of mates. There is animosity between these two women, there is a constant battle for recognition before Jacob. They never seem to see eye to eye, and yet on this occasion, they're together. They're of one mind. Look at why they're together. Verse fourteen says, "Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has put up with, uh, what has, but he has used up what was paid for us." It would appear at this moment in time, Rachel and Leah's decision is based purely on what's best for them. It's all about the financial outcome. Look at it. All, of, all that my father had, that used to be a safe place. And now it's not. Because remarkably, now everything that my father had, Jacob's got. And what's more, he seems to have just sold us as far uh, as insignificance to Jacob It's not exactly the most um, engaging, loving relationship, is it? It's kind of like being sold to you. You've now got all the wealth. Okay, weighing it up. Best option. That's where we're off. Because if we stay here, we're left with nothing. That's where they are. What a contrast. What a contrast... To Auntie Rebecca, Auntie Rebecca, Laban's brother, uh, Laban's sister, their auntie, went to marry Isaac, Jacob's father. And her focus was completely different. Her focus was this: I'm going to go to nothing. I'm going to go to what I don't know. I'm going to go without any idea of what is in the future for me, and I'm going to go because God is in it. And there's these two women saying, the decision that I'm going to make is not, it would seem, based on the idea of God leading Jacob, God leading us, but rather where we decide financially, the best option is. It's really interesting the way they respond. Verse 16, surely all the wealth that God uh, took away from our father belongs to us and our children. In other words, you know, what What was our father's is still ours, (laughs) but it happens to belong to you now, but we still consider it ours as our father's. So do do whatever God has told you. Isn't that interesting? Do whatever God has told you. No sense in which we share in this. We see that God is moving in this, but the decision is made. Isn't it amazing that God is gracious and kind and willing to still pursue Rachel and Leah? in his relationship with them, even though their attitude at this time does not engage. That's what this story seems to be centered around. Jacob's beginning to learn it. Rachel and Leah, it seems, are still right at the very beginning. They're still, they are still—they being pursued by grace. They are being chased continually by grace. Will they learn to live according to it, so they say we'll go verse nineteen, so Jacob put his children, and his wives on the camels, and drove them all away, and they decided to leave. Look at verse nineteen when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods, took them away with her that 's not just it's kind of, in one sense, it's, a, it's almost a so what, isn't it? It's almost a so what. It just seems such an insignificant event. And yet, it is amazingly powerful in its parallel. How did Jacob end up with his uncle Laban? He was ending. He, he was with Uncle Laban because he stole the blessing of God from his father, and ended up having to run away. He stole the inheritance. He stole the blessing from his brother that Isaac should be bestowing on Esau. He stole it and hightailed it. And it seems as though Rachel is stealing what she sees as the blessing. You know, these little gods, she stole them. She subsequently hid them away in her camel saddle, we read later on in the chapter. So we're not talking about huge statues, are we? We're talking relatively little gods, which can be tucked away and hidden away, but for her were significant of her concept at this point in time of what might be blessing. And I'll keep a hold of that. I'm heading off ostensibly under the God of Jacob, but I'll keep a hold of the gods of my father as well, just in case. I'll back my bets, I'll, or rather I'll hedge my I'm not a gambler, am I? I'll hedge my bets. I'll, I'll hedge my bets. I'll play that one and I'll play that one just in case. And I'll try and get a bit of blessing from the God of my father as well as the God of my husband. Oh, how much she had to learn. But you know what? Oh, okay. Okay. Not many of us, I don't think, because I haven't seen any camel parking in the car park, have arrived this afternoon on a camel. Therefore, neither have many of us, I would guess, stolen the gods of our fathers or mothers and took them away in our bags for a little bit of security. But the reality is, many, many of us live with exactly the same idea and attitude towards life. I'll not fully trust that God of the Bible. I'll not fully commit myself wholeheartedly to believing that my life is in His hands every day by Him is planned. I'll hedge it. I'll add a little bit of security of the gods of this world. The little temporary things which in cosmic divine terms are the tiny little gods which we hide away in our camel saddlebacks. They're insignificant, they're temporary, they're meaningless and yet we live as though they are going to give us that extra little bit of security that we think might just hedge our bets for life. And how often do they prove useless? In fact, quite the contrary. What we find is when we really trust in them, not only do they prove useless, but actually they prove to be the very downfall of our hope. They prove that they come back and bite us. In fact, rather than thinking that we worship, that we are providing our, their, our security in them, our hope in them, we find rather that they end up controlling us. Let me just give you one little example. One of the gods that we might took away in our camel saddlebag is the security of financial uh, resources. Got to make sure that I'm financially secure. Now, in one sense, the Bible makes it really clear that that is just wise. To have no regard whatsoever to being productive uh, and being wise in planning for the future is, from a biblical perspective, uh, a crazy thing to do. However, when we make it our absolute security, what do we end up finding that we do? We end up finding that we serve that God. It no longer serves our security. We serve it. We give everything to it. Because that's what we do with gods. That's what we do with things that we truly worship. We give everything to them. And we find out that we commit ourselves fully to them in the hope that they will secure us. And then the bank that we bank with goes bankrupt. Or the pension fund that we end up Uh, investing in ends up with a shortfall. Or there's a change in the interest rates. And we find that that whole combination of the insecurities of this temporary money market, we realize the thing that we served has actually not only taken us over, but ultimately failed us as well. Why? Because what we see portrayed in this narrative is the idea that that is a little god a little God. We haven't had time to read the whole of the chapter, so we're going to carry on. How does it develop? We find that um, uh, Jacob with his wives, they they head off, they they disappear without telling Laban that they're on the way. In fact, at the end of our reading, uh, we realize that we, we see that Jacob actually was unreasonable in his behavior uh, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him he was running away. So they're both culpable in this. Uh, and they, they, three days later, Laban catches up with them. Why didn't you? Why didn't you tell me that you were going to leave? And then I could have, then I could have had a celebration, and I could have said a, goodbye to my children and grandchildren properly. Says Laban. That's what he says to to Jacob. Why didn't you tell me? To be perfectly honest, if you were in Jacob's shoes, the last time that Laban threw him a party, he ended up with the wrong wife. So whether he would actually trust Laban in the party that he was going to throw is debatable. But there we are. Why didn't you tell me? And even more, why didn't you tell me that, sorry, why were you so deceptive as to steal from me? So, okay, he's done a runner. Okay, fair enough. Bang to rights for that one, but stolen from you. In the previous chapter, Jacob has made it really clear one of the things, the steps that he's taken is integrity has become part of his life. He says this to Laban, everything that I do, you can see that I'm being honest. And now he's confronted with the idea that he's had, he's he's stolen something as he has left. We Read in verse um, verse uh, thirty two. If any, obviously the thing that's been stolen is the god, is the gods of Laban. And Jacob says, if anyone, if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the goods. Wow. So here, the narrator beautifully sets up this cliffhanger. The wife who Jacob really loved is the one who's stolen the blessing from her father and hidden it away in her saddlebag. And Jacob, her husband, the one who loves her, says, if you find anything, the person who's stolen it will die. And Laban starts the search. Tent to tent... Camel to camel, looking through all of the goods. He ends up in the tent of Rachel. Rachel sat on her camel saddle. Let me have a look in that camel saddle, he says. And Rachel says, I can't get up. Because I'm on a period at the moment. It's basically what the Bible says. Now, to be honest, that's a, that's a strange response. Because in the ancient world, that would never have been anything that would have caused a woman not to get on with life any more than today. It's not as though things have changed dramatically. But it was just a really simple, you know, down-to-earth, real-life stuff. And so the father just disappears. Okay, she gets away with it. But what's going on? What's truly going on in the mind of the narrator? And the idea is quite simply this. At that moment in time, Rachel is sat on uh, the saddle of her camel, sat on these gods, and Laban comes in, and literally speaking, her life is on the line. She doesn't realize it that point. Well, maybe she's heard what Jacob said. Jacob certainly doesn't realize it at that moment in time. He doesn't know that his wife's life is in the balance. Maybe she does. Maybe she's overheard what Jacob has said. But she's sat there. And the narrator is portraying this idea to you and to me. As she sat there, which of the gods is truly protecting her? Which one is actually engaged in the narrative in a way that can save her? The gods that she sat on, or the God who the night before has spoken to Laban in a vision and said, don't lay your finger on Jacob, or any of his. That's the picture that is being portrayed. As this family is beginning to understand and is beginning to come to terms with the God of Abraham and Isaac, which of the gods is truly the God who is living and in control? Who is the God who is truly able to save? Who is the God who is truly engaging? Do you know where those gods ended up? Sometime later on as they're on their journeys, Jacob says to all that are with him, I want you to get all of the foreign gods. Let's gather them together. I'm going to dig a hole. I'm going to bury them in Shechem. That's where those gods ended up. Buried in a hole in Shechem. Because those are the gods that could never have saved Rachel. The God that can save Rachel, the God that can save you and me, is not a God that is tangible, not a God that is shaped by human hands, not a God which is something which we create, but rather a God who engages with us because he is the creator of us. You see the difference? There is a human tendency to create gods and expect us and then expect them to serve us, to to save us. And actually the Christian faith declares something radically opposite. The God who we serve is the God who created us, not the God who we've created The created become worshippers of the creator. And at that moment in time, what actually becomes the salvation for Rachel is the way that God has already spoken to Laban the night before and has preserved her life. So I guess the challenge is God or God's. They make a covenant. Verse 42 says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. That's what he says to Laban. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. That's what Jacob says to Laban. The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, if you have a look in your Bibles, you'll see that the word fear has a capital F at the beginning of it because it's a name. It's a way of naming God, which is an interesting idea, isn't it? We're going to come back to that. But Jacob says to Laban, this God has kept me and preserved me even when you would have done me bad. And even last night, he spoke to you and rebuked you. So in other words, Laban, you have been confronted with this God. That brings accountability, therefore, Laban, upon you. You, This is not a God that is Uh, A stone statue hidden away in a camel saddlebag which has never spoken to you. This is a God who has engaged and rebuked you. So they make a covenant. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap of stones. Stones play a, a real part in Jacob's life. The stones in many of the narratives, here's this heap and here is this pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. From being the servant of Laban, he has now reached a status of equality with Laban. Why? Because God has delivered him. God has saved him. And they place these stones, this symbolic gesture of these stones in the ground, and they effectively, figuratively speaking, they probably didn't do this, but they shake hands and they say, that's it. You don't cross this side, I won't cross that side, and we will never harm each other. I respect you, and I respect you. But look, here's the interesting thing. On what grounds does that respect? find foundation. For Laban, he says this, may the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. You see, Laban, for, for for all of the moments in his life, all of these occasions when the God, the true God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has engaged with him, rebuked him, spoken through situations, been spoken about by people around him, he still holds on to his idea of God's. I'll I'll keep my options open. I'll speak of the God of Abraham. I'll speak of the God of Nahor. I'll keep all of these gods in my, my idea of what it is to have relationship with the divine. I'll keep all of those options open. Just that, but that's my promise. In other words, I'll use these gods to be the leverage for my commitment to you. I'll use them. And Jacob says this. Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? Mentions it earlier. The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. Fear of fear. The name fear, actually. The idea of this God who is, as Jacob has now worked out, so astounding, so incredible, that it is appropriate to use the word. Breathtaking or fear or awesome or incredible, there's no alternatives in the repertoire of gods for Jacob. There is this one fear filling God. Fear, what a strange thing! I remember years ago we were in Hong Kong and um. I don't know whether you've... You you don't need to be in Hong Kong, I guess. But we did it with the boys. And we are all stood at the bottom of this uh, huge, incredible skyscraper. And we just stood right on the corner of the skyscraper and looked up. And it was just... It made you... Well, it made my stomach turn. It was so so incredible it sort of as you looked up it felt as if it was so big that it almost seemed as if it was leaning over you it was so immense it was so incredible you know it it shook you it made your stomach kind of turn you might not get that experience with a big building but you might get it maybe that stood in a harbor next to a big ship maybe that's your thing it's a big ship isn't it some of you think yeah I know. Uh, whatever it might be, there are things that fill us, not with, not with just controlled interest, but fill us with breathtaking awe, with fear-filling awe. The Bible later goes on to say that is one of the key issues in growing in our wisdom before God. The idea that that appropriate, awesome understanding of God is what enters into our mind and enters into our vocabulary. Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, Jacob is beginning to get wise. Because he's now beginning to say part of my repertoire, part of my way of speaking and thinking and engaging with this God who I'm getting to know is I use the name fear. It's remarkable, isn't it? Not that he's terrified, scared, because he's in a relationship with this God, but rather he's come to understand that this God is so amazing that the appropriate response is breathtaking awe and trembling. And that is the beginning of wisdom, to understand that God is like that. You know, there are two approaches in understanding the cross. One is to look down and say, look at that dying human, nailed and bleeding and pouring out his life. And that's the end. And the other is to be astounded, mind blown, that the God who created the whole of the universe creates a structure of salvation a way of saving you and me that is so rooted in love and giving that he nails himself to a cross and pours out his life. When we understand that is the nature of God, then when we truly understand that, when we truly get that, we can no longer look down and say, interesting. Rather, we look up and feel remarkably shaky and small. Even if we dare to look up. You see, that's what the fear of God does in us. It's not a fear that terrifies us. It's a fear that thrills us that's what it means to begin to know the God of the Bible with wisdom. Pray that we do.